Hey, welcome back to the Ameritics with Kim Munson, where we dissect issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left, agree or disagree. Let's have a conversation. Be sure and check out my website, Ameritics.com. Sign up for our emails. I'm thrilled to have on the line with me Rob Nadelson. Uh, he has written a very important piece. It was in the Complete Colorado. Uh, Advocates of socialism should know its horrific history. And Rob, in uh, the uh, earlier segments, we were talking about there is a a known uh, communist that is now on Denver City Council. Uh, What is going on and what can we do about it? I don't think people understand what socialism and communism really does. Well, first, Kim, it's uh, thrilling to me to be back with you. and I concur, you're right. I mean, one of the things I started off with in the article is that uh, that critics of the public school system must be congratulating themselves in kind of a gruesome way because it's clear that the schools have not been teaching recent history. Socialism is probably the most debunked uh, political system in the world, and uh, and yet it keeps coming up. And every generation, you've got more people who say, good, this sounds like a really good idea. And it's a, it's a horrible idea. Just in the 20th century alone, it caused tens of millions oh, of deaths. Um, and many of the countries that our local homegrown socialists point out as uh, countries that they would like to be like have, in fact, distanced themselves of a largely abandoned socialism. Well, yeah, and I think people don't realize, and uh, you were going through the uh, the totals, and I had, I had researched these as well, that it's under socialist governments, because ultimately social uh, socialism and communism gets to force, and ultimately force can get to death. And so in communist China, they don't know the official count, because they didn't keep count, but they estimate anywhere from 40 to 80 million people died. In Russia, 30 to 40 million. Nazi Germany, and Nazi stands for National Socialist German Workers' Party, uh, perhaps 11 million. Uh, I think in Cambodia, that uh, Pol Pot, I think that they, uh, I think there was over like 1.2 million, but the problem was there were only 6 million people in the country. I mean, you don't do well as a regular person under socialism. No, if you have... Um political connections, you may be able to get by uh, for what passes as uh, elite luxuries. So in the Soviet Union, for example, if you were a very good boy or girl and belonged to the Communist Party, you might get a nice two-bedroom apartment in Moscow. That that would be your kind of pinnacle of opportunity. Others might have two-bedroom apartments, but they might have to put two two or three families on Mm -hmm. And so um, what socialism does, one of the things it does is it creates... uh, Enormous inequalities. I mean, people think of socialism as rectifying inequality and having more equality. That's not really true, because the people who um, uh, the people who are connected uh, wind up receiving all kinds of perks, which don't look very impressive from our standpoint, but uh, serve to distinguish them greatly from uh, from the rest of the people. Recently. Um, I reread a classic, uh, George Orwell's 1984, and I was struck by the continuing relevance of that book. And one of the things he points out is that members of the inner party had all these little luxuries that every, everybody else didn't have, like, like real coffee, for example. But from our standpoint, they would, they would be viewed as insignificant. 
You know, speaking of that, I was thinking about Venezuela. Venezuela, uh, you know, was is a country that has many, many resources. And I remember when it was thriving and prospering. Now people don't have enough food. They don't have toilet paper. They don't have coffee. And uh, I was in a, one of our supermarkets just recently, and I, I just was in awe. of There was chickens on rotisseries, and there was any kind of dessert you wanted. And I'm thinking, how is it that people don't see that this great benefit of capitalism where we have all these choices where we can trade our hard-earned dollars for the products that we want? I just don't, I don't understand, Rob. I'm, I'm troubled by this well, romance one, with socialism. One, one, reason, one reason, as I mentioned, is the failure of the education system. Also, of course, most people have never been abroad and been in socialist countries. Um, let, let me get, just to, to tell you an anecdote from, from my own experience. In the 1970s, when I was in law school, I took a few weeks off and I went to Great Britain. And that, that was the so-called winter of discontent. This was the height of British, so, British socialism. And it was a truly gloomy place. I mean, nothing was working. The phone system was lousy. The transportation system was lousy. Uh, the workers were always on strike. The inflation rate was outrageous. I mean, it was just a horrible, dark, gloomy situation. Well, I did not return to Britain for 25 years. 25 years later, in 1999, uh, my wife and I went back to uh, England, and and it was I, it was the changes were indescribable. Uh, for one thing, m- many things that had been socialized, such as the coal business and the transportation business and the airports, had all been uh, had all been privatized. But the standard of living had soared. People were upbeat. They were happy. It wasn't just that they were wealthier; they had smiles on their faces. What happened? What happened in that 25 years? The answer is Margaret Thatcher happened. Margaret Thatcher had largely. Um, not as much as she would have liked, but in many ways dis- dismantled British socialism, giving Britain a chance to thrive. Today, uh, again, we have our local socialist point to Great Britain. Today, Great Britain ranks higher on indexes of economic freedom than we do. In fact, they are, in fact, less socialist than we do. We are in everything except their their uh, health care system, and their health care system has been has been moving in our direction, or at least moving in a capitalist direction. Um, and, and yet, and here's a story, Kim, that later on I, I talked to one young woman about, um, uh, about the changes in Britain, and I, I believe that she was British, the remarkable changes in Britain, and, and I said it's all because of one extraordinary woman. And this person's response was, yes, Princess Diana did a lot, didn't she? <laughs> Oh my God! You know, here, here was this Brit who had no concept of what of what uh, her, uh, what her own prime minister had done for the country, uh, and I saw that was common in Britain. I, I was at one uh, a party at Oxford because I was living at Oxford um, and reading at the university there, and uh, I, I remember uh, my cousin uh, who lived in uh, Great Britain uh, bad mouthing the. Uh, privatization and bad-mouthing Margaret Thatcher. And another Oxonian, Oxford woman, came over to to him and said, Miriam, do you remember what it was like? You know, for example, consider the phone system. You couldn't get a telephone call through, and you had lots of choices in phones so long as they were all rotary dial Mm -hmm. and black. Mm -hmm. And 
and Miriam said, and she listened, and she said, you know, you're right. You're right. I guess Margaret Thatcher had to, had to do some things. And that was a hard admission for her because she was a laborite. She was a, a, a moderate socialist. But, um, but people forget. And uh, that's the reason why the education system has to remind people that, uh, of socialism, socialism's record and also of the heroes who have turned it back. Not Princess Diana, right. <laughs> but people like Margaret Thatcher um, and Roger Douglas in New Zealand, who turned New Zealand into the third freest, eco- uh, economically freest country in the world, and so forth. Well, you talk about the education system, Rob Nadelson, and uh, I really think that the government-run public education system is letting our kids down. Uh, instead of focusing on teaching these important things, uh, you know, one of the things I've been concerned about is this um, this sex education bill uh, that is now law here in Colorado. Instead of teaching kids and, and helping them learn the tools to critically think, you know, and understand history, uh, you know, we're we're not focusing, I don't think, on the things that kids need to learn. And are you encouraged? Are we going to turn this back? We just had this uh, this young woman that was elected to city council in Denver who says she is a communist and is, is wants to redis, redistribute um, wealth, uh, and, and her quotes are just absolutely amazing. Steve gave those in the earlier segments regarding capitalism. I mean, ultimately, I, I, I mean, I just see big danger here. What are we going to do, Rob Nadelson? Well, of course, public education is a key here. One of the things is understanding that... Um, the way the left operates in our own country is largely out of the socialist playbook. So, for example, you saw um, over the weekend, we saw, this is very heartening, two million people taking to the streets in Hong Kong mm-hmm. to resist the demands of the, of the uh, communist socialist government in, in, uh, in, on the mainland. And they were successful. They were successful in turning, turning it back. Well, there's an article in Bloomberg News this morning which points out that one of the great reasons for the success of those mass demonstrations, when similar demonstrations five years ago did not succeed, was that this time the demonstrators had the backing of the business community. Now, there's a lesson there. What is it about business that made the difference? The answer is that business is, an indiv- is, a, is a separate center of power. It's a separate center of power from the government. It's different. Similarly, families are traditionally independent centers of power. You know, a lot of decisions are made in families rather than in the government. Um, Religious denominations, religion is traditionally uh, separate from, uh, it's a separate center of power and influence. Uh, The states in our federal system are separate centers of uh, power and and influence from Washington, D.C. Now, what what do all those things have in common? Well, Besides the fact that they're separate centers of power and influence, they're all on the socialist hit list. You know, you think about the way the left attacks, um, the way they attack families, traditional family values, such as getting the public schools uh, involved in what should be a family discussion, how they hate corporations, how they constantly try to denigrate, denigrate state rights, states' rights, how they denigrate denigrate traditional religions. The, the reason is that what they're trying to do is they're attacking outside centers of power. They want everything to be concentrated in the government that they, that they can control without inconvenient resistance 
from others. Same thing with the right to keep and bear arms. As long as you've got an armed citizenry, you've got some potential resistance to a socialist central government. So if when people under, understand, aha, that's what's going on, when they come to understand that, then a, a large part of the battle will, be, will have been won. Okay, we're going to go to break, and I, I want to talk with you about how we're doing in that battle right now, if you're encouraged. So this is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks. We're talking with Rob Nadelson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Ameritics with Kim Munson, where we dissect issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left, agree or disagree. Let's have a conversation, having a really important conversation with Rob Nadelson. He is a former constitutional law professor. He is the senior fellow of uh, jurisprudence over at the Independence Institute. Uh, very important books that you've written, as well as these um, these uh, publications that you do on a regular basis. They are so good. This one that you did recently, in uh, it was in the Complete Colorado, Advocates of Socialism Should Know Its Horrific History. Everyday people don't do very well under socialism. And what I have, fa- I, I can't, I honestly can't figure out this whole elite mentality. Because I, I do really believe in this this American idea that we're all created equal and have these rights to pursue life, liberty, and, and happiness. But that is antithetical to socialism. How are we doing right now, do you think, in America regarding this big push to socialism and communism? Well, uh, be, before I get, get to that, let me just mention, to try to answer your question is, you know, why do people get into this elite mentality you know, if you've owned a dog or if you've been around dogs as I, as I have, you realize that dogs operate largely by hierarchy, where people trade among themselves as equals for the most part. Uh, dogs have this, uh, they order their society according to, you know, who's top dog and who's bottom dog and so forth. Well, we have a certain tendency of that as well in our own, uh, in our own genes. And it's, it's always kind of a struggle. The, the capitalist side of us wants to just trade with others and make deals and, and, and peaceably get along. The socialist side of us wants to be dogs. I mean, we want, kind of want to be top dog. And it, it, the fact that we're all living like dogs sometimes makes le- less difference to people than, than, than the opportunity to be top dog. And so really, you know, you could think of socialism as a kind of a, a canine form of social organization. Now, as to... <laughs> wow. As to... Uh, <laughs> As to uh, how we're doing, I'm pessimistic about the United States right now. I'm very optimistic globally. I was looking this morning at the latest ranking from the Heritage Foundation of economic freedom. Uh, Those countries which are – all the countries in the world are ranked by economic freedom. Uh, And I'm just going to read you the top ten very quickly and ask you what do most of them have in common. Well, number one is Hong Kong, number two is Singapore, number three, New Zealand, number four, Switzerland, number five, Australia, number six, Ireland, seven, United Kingdom, eight, Canada, nine, United Arab Emirates, and ten, Taiwan. You know, the United States is no longer in the top top ten. We we used to be about third. Uh, But since the uh, later Bush administration and the Obama administration have done their magic, uh, we've we've slipped down down the list. Okay, now going through the, that list, one of the things you noticed about it is that of those top ten, eight of them, uh, six of them, I think, are, are either Great Britain or former British colonies. 
there is an enormous, a, a very great uh, history of freedom that ca came with the British Empire and with British culture. That's remember. Remember, I mentioned about the socialist or left-wing playbook. Mm -hmm. They're really into multiculturalism to downplay our Anglo-American, our, our English uh, uh, tradition, and, and as well as our traditions from other places. Well, that's part of it. See. That, that English tradition is very heavily connected with law, with freedom, with individualism, and so forth, and that's antithetical to socialism. The second thing you know, notice about countries on the list is, like, like the United Kingdom, like Canada, like New Zealand, uh, like Ireland, they're, they're countries that you traditionally associate as socialist, but they're really not socialist anymore. Uh, they, they, they have mixed economies, that's, that's to be sure, but they're freer than we are economically. And that's because of trends in the world of which Margaret Thatcher was a part uh, in the 80s and 90s and 2000s. And these trends in, in favor of freedom uh, continue. United States, on the other hand, which used to rank about third, is now 12th, and which isn't, which isn't low. It's, it's still reasonably high. But uh, we have had a lot of trouble maintaining our tradition of freedom uh, under the relentless assault of the, um, the academic and governmental and foundation elites and, so, and, and journalistic elites. And so I'm less optimistic about the United States. Well, we need to be making the case in the battle of ideas that is raging in America today. That's one of the reasons why I do this show is so that we can be having conversations about what's really going on out there. I had uh, been asked to speak at a meeting uh, right here in the metro area before the elections for Denver City Council. And there was a woman who uh, unseated an incumbent on Denver City Council. And I, I listened to her speak and I thought she is very polished she is saying not much, but she's saying it very well because she was in front of a, a more conservative group. And so I did a little bit of research. And yes, in fact, she was part of this whole Emerge group. And she was elected. And uh, I, I realized that this is very well organized. I think that, that freedom-loving people have been uh, asleep at the wheel a bit on just this... Um, very organized, powerful movement to t uh, to have have people elected to uh, school boards, city councils, you know, all the way up to Congress now. And what can yeah. we do? What can we do about it, Rob? Well, you know, um, I don't think there's any one answer. Um, I certainly think it's really important to support the convention of states movement. As you know, um, I signed on to that movement mm -hmm. back in September after. Uh, doing some research in that area. The Convention of States movement seeks to uh, adopt constitutional amendments that restore some of the limits to the federal government that were in the original Constitution. Uh, we in America have a long history of using constitutional amendments very successfully to implement reforms. And uh, what basically what the Convention of States movement is doing is they're collecting state legislative resolutions. They've got 15 of them now. When they've got 34, we're going to have a convention for proposing amendments uh, like term limits, for example, or a balanced budget or other efforts uh, to, uh, to restrain the federal government. When I was in academia, which I was for full-time for 30, uh, 25 years and part-time for six years, 
I, I came to learn that many of the bad ideas that infest our universities actually come down from the federal government. They're the product of federal agencies, federal aid, uh, you know, carefully planted grants and so forth. There are also private uh, leftists working uh, to, uh, to, to seed the system. I mean, a famous example is George Soros. He's got a right to do what he wants with his money, but people need to be aware that this is happening, and uh, people on our side who have money need to support um, uh, need to support freedom-loving institutions. Let me just mention one other. This sounds like a crass commercial message, but I think it's a legitimate one. We see conservatives who have money often giving uh, big grants to the University of Colorado and to other universities. That's not a good investment for your money. Uh, you're far better off giving money to an organization like the Independence Institute, for example, which supports freedom and will use the money far more efficiently than any university would. So it is, a, it is kind of a source of frustration when I see uh, conservative donors giving money to, to universities where I know from my personal experience working at universities that it's going to be misused. Oh my gosh, that's um, when for they, sure. When they, when they could be giving, when they could be giving money uh, to freedom, uh, to freedom-loving organizations like the Independence Institute, or like the Americhicks, <laughs> that's for sure. So. Or like the Americhicks, <laughs> or like, or like the Convention of States. We are out of time. Uh, it always goes so quickly with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kim.